This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at And I hope you don't take that for granted. I know some of you are like, are we supposed to stand or sit? Here, here's the rules. We don't care. If you feel like that you need to stand, stand. If you need to sit, sit. And I pray that one day you'll feel like you can't help it, but you need to get on your knees before the Lord on your face at this altar in times of worship because we're trying to break out of systematic order of service. When we orchestrate an order of service to tell God when he's going to show up and what he's going to do, we have then superseded that which he is going to do. So we need to make sure we understand what it means in Galatians 5, or it is for freedom we have been set free in an orderly form of worship, but right worship. And we are so thankful that we have the freedom to do so. We, these songs that we sing, you know, there's a lot of Christian songs out there. I joked earlier at 8 o'clock, we did What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I grew up in the church. What a Friend We Have in Jesus was one of the 12 hymns we sang every three weeks, right? I don't know if that's your experience, but it was mine. And I remember as a kid growing up, and you get to that last line, you know, we never sang the third verse. We're very Baptist, but we never did that one. But you get to that last verse, and it says, we will find a solace there. And I mean, as a kid, I am looking at that going, why are we looking, why would God give us a shoelace? And why is it there? So every time I sing that, I go back. I'm like, we will find our shoelaces there. Praise the Lord. We'll now never sing that song again. But things that are stuck in your head, right? There's a lot of songs out there that are, are, are kind of catchy and pop-oriented, and then there are songs and hymns that actually have doctrine within them. You know, we're kind of breaking away from Jesus is my boyfriend hymns to actually doctrinally sound ones that when we sing about the Lord, we sing to him and to you about him. And there are two different kinds of hymns and songs and praise choruses we will sing. I'm thankful for a worship team that's considered about that and focused on understanding the difference between just singing and worshiping. And I'm thankful that we can worship through song. We worship through the reading and preaching of the word of God even now. So Isaiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 which begins with a recitation of a popular song of the day apparently. Verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for, to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? 
And now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard, or to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall be, not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that, the rain no, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You have a story that is placed in here from a popular song of the day. Chapter 5 begins that way. And I know as we've entered into the book of Isaiah and we said, hey, come to this point of understanding what Isaiah is speaking of. I'll get to the other passage in just a minute. That, that there is this, um, this wonder of, well, this is depressing. When does it get to the good stuff? Right? But when you read Isaiah's words that the Lord has given him to put down pen to paper for us to read even now, you notice that he is a gifted storyteller and he is the anointed one of God and he is called out by God and he is writing these warnings to the people of God. And at this point, if you'll imagine it this way, he begins in chapter five with a popular song of the day, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. It's a popular song, apparently. If you can imagine, as the tune begins to kind of resonate, everybody's going, oh, yeah, I know that song. And they start singing along, just like you would if you hear something on the radio or somewhere. You know the song. But he is more than just a purveyor of pop music. In fact, Isaiah is called by the Holy Spirit of God, called by God himself to be his prophet, to spread the word that is not necessarily desired, but he's also been given this great talent as a storyteller. And so Isaiah has the ability to weave words in such a way and to wordsmith them as such that when you hear the story, you're going, oh, oh, that's, that's good. That's really good. He's not the only prophet that had that capability. In fact, God has the ultimate capability and will use his men in that way. But it reminds me of the prophet Nathan. Let me, let me just read this story to you just to bring you back up to speed on what happened there. Nathan shows up in the book of 2 Samuel. He's not around for long. He really has apparently one major purpose to, to bring, and it says this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. So now he's got the king listening. I'm going to tell you a story, David. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man really had nothing but one little ewe lamb, one little baby sheep, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and I guess became a pet. He used to eat of the, his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. That's kind of strange, but he's painting the picture. In verse 4, it says, There came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock, he had many, or one of his own herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's, it's a tragic story. He takes the only sheep the poor guy's got, kills it, and prepares it, and feeds it to the to traveler coming through while he's got a whole flock. And when David hears the story, King David, the most powerful man in the nation, the anointed one, a man after God's own heart, but not a man without sin. It says in verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, this imaginary man that he'd been told of. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan bravely, this is a hugely courageous moment, 
says, for the first time in recorded history, we hear this. He looks to David and says, you demand. You demand. You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. That story is, how does that relate to Isaiah? Because what you have is Nathan, the storyteller, prophet of God, boldly going to the king with his life in danger to dare to say, you are guilty of sinning against the Most High. Isaiah comes to the entire people of Israel, of Judah, the people of God, and he writes this out. And he gives a story about a vineyard and a vine and grapes, and he says, it's all about you. Because you have drifted. I don't even know if drifting is the word. You have turned and run from the holiness and glory of God and are living as religious people, but far from God. You are the man, Nathan said to David. You are the nation, Isaiah said to the people. Isaiah recounts a love song and singing, but there is this unveiling that comes in this story that is seemingly about grapes and a vineyard. But it's really not about grapes. And it's really not about a vineyard. And as Isaiah is speaking the words of God to a hard-hearted people who are undeserving of love, understand that, the people that are hearing the message of God through Isaiah do not deserve to be loved. They do not deserve to have life. They do not deserve to have the land that has been given to them by God. They actually do not deserve to have hope for a future. And he calls them to stop. To look deeply and listen closely, in other words, to behold this great God who has not changed. This unchanging God, this immutable God. We are changing. We change all the time. You can tell how much we change just by looking at the oldest photograph of yourself on Facebook, which is probably your profile picture at this point. Many of us don't even look like that anymore. We change. But God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this unchanging God who loves them deeply, but because he loves them so deeply, will not simply allow them to continue as they are. Nor will he continue, nor has he ever really ignored sin. But he is preparing and providing a way. And the heinous sins that they have committed over years are about to be dealt with. Because he's not gonna say, hey, it's all good. That's really not of God either. It's all good, no worries, my bad. That's not what he's saying. The accumulation of sin left unrepented of will eventually be judged and that's what's coming. So that's a song, a poem. Behold God and listen, behold God and look. The song places God in this as an illustration where God is the vine dresser who has a vineyard, a beautiful fruit producing vineyard. It was created and tilled by him, and yet when it comes time to, I guess, you, do you harvest grapes? I don't know. When you get them, when he gets the grapes, they're bad grapes. Look at the verse. It says, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, we look at that and we go, wild grapes? Well, that's not so bad. Wild grapes, you know? What's the opposite of wild grapes? I guess, tame grapes, I guess. So I don't know. I wanted tame grapes, and I got wild grapes. It's like finding, like, wild blueberries or wild blackberries, you know? But that's not exactly, I mean, that does mean wild, but the word transliterated as wild has another meaning as well that comes alongside that and is just as uh, uh, applicable. And it also means uh, ruined, bad, and stinky. 
So now we've got a different picture. I tilled the ground, I planted the grapes, I expected to have a good harvest, but now I have a bunch of stinky grapes. Rotten grapes. Nasty grapes. I was actually gonna go buy some grapes and use this as an illustration today, you know, to have that, you know, that's that old, you better have a prop kind of mentality. And then I thought, here's what would happen if I went and bought grapes for the illustration. One, I'd end up with a lot of grapes. And I don't really want a lot of grapes, so I didn't. So that saved me some money. Secondly, I thought I could buy rubber grapes, but have you ever eaten rubber grapes? Those are bad. So I'm gonna trust that you have the capacity to imagine a grape. There, it's now interactive. See how that works? All right, so you're imagining that. So when you look at this vineyard that's produced bad fruit, stinky fruit, bad fruit produced from a tree, bad fruit produced from a vine, bad fruit. See, that, that, that's also referenced throughout the New Testament. You know, Christ speaks of that. Remember when the fig tree he went to and he's looking for a fig, there's not a fig to be found, so what's he do? Curses the tree, the tree dies. You're like, well, that's not quite fair. He killed the tree. The tree didn't do what the tree was supposed to do. A tree that produces bad fruit is not a tree worth having. A vine that produces stinky grapes is not a vine worth cultivating. And what the vine dresser is saying here is this has happened, and it leads to this question. But why has it happened? Verse three gives two possible reasons. It says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me, God, and my vineyard. The failure is either on the owner of the vineyard or the vineyard itself. There's a failure somewhere. And as we read in the first two verses, the owner did all that was required and needed and loved as he protected and cared for the vineyard. And yet it still produced stinky grapes. Verse four says that he has done all that he needed to do. That's what he says to himself, or says to the people. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Yet when I looked to it to yield grapes, what, why did it yield wild, stinky grapes? So why are there these kind of grapes popping up in the vineyard? And where is this vineyard? The vineyard is the people of Israel, the people of God. And the results are the people of God are not producing good fruit. Why is that happening? When God looked into his vineyard for sweet, ripe, good fruit, why is production so bad? And it comes to that point, well, maybe it's God's fault. Maybe God messed up. Now, I know some of you are going, well, God doesn't mess up. I get that. But a lot of people think he does, if they think of him at all. God has messed up. That's what some would say. And many people we know, and perhaps some we know very well because we see him in the mirror on a daily basis, have moved from, as we spoke of last week, being what we are wired to be by our depraved nature, blamers. You know that's reality. We we talked about that last Sunday. That by our nature, we tend to want to blame people when things go wrong. If something happens, it's somebody's fault. Who's to blame? That, you know, why did this happen? This person got sick. Who got him sick? This person had a car wreck. What were they doing? It's somebody's fault. And we're always looking who's, where can we place the blame? And it's easier to place the blame out there than to place it in here. Nathan goes to David and says, this is what's happened. David goes, we've got to take care of that guy. But Nathan says, but it's you. That never occurred to David. Think about this. David, the adulterer and the murderer, it never crossed his mind that he was guilty. He was the king. The people of God are so set in their ways doing their temple worship and religiosity and just enough God to get them through the day. It never crosses their mind that they are the stinky grapes because they are not 
doing as God has created them to do, being as God created them to be. They have made God something they will do through routine, just like many who do church as what we do on Sundays, rather than the 24-7 life of a disciple. So it's somebody else's fault. But let me just tell you, in addition to the blame game, there's also the if onlys, all right? So the blame is it's someone else's fault things are the way they are. And I gotta be honest, there's enough sin around the world to blame everybody. So it's not that everybody's innocent but us. It's just be sure we count us too. But then there's the if only. And the if onlys really get us. The if-onlys often come from the Christians who are redeemed and saved by God and yet have settled into fulfilling their God-given calling of sitting in a pew, period, and wondering why things aren't the way they are. And yet they have these ideas that if only certain things would happen, I would serve more, serve better, do more, give more, act more godly, go on the mission trip, do this, that, and the other. If only. So you end up with this long list that it just keeps going, things like, well, if my husband or my wife wasn't a jerk, then I could, you know, be more faithful in my Christian walk, we could do devotions together, we could go to class together, we could lead a marriage, but he's a jerk or she's a jerk. Or if only I had a better job. My job is a mess and it keeps me from living for the Lord. If only I had a better job with a better schedule. Or if only I had more money. If only I had more money, then I would, I would give it all to missions. It's really easy to give all your money away when you don't have any. Let me just go ahead and say. Just go ahead and say, if only I had more money. We, we used to have a dear lady that was a member of our church. She's since moved away. But um, when I first moved here back in the 90s, she would say, it was like her, her catchphrase. She would say, I heard it, she must have said it 20 times. She had a daughter in the youth group and a son in the youth group. And she would always say something to the effect, well, when my ship comes in, and I'm like, your ship comes in, I keep, you live in Ridgecrest. There's not even any water near your house. Where's your ship and where's it coming from? And when it comes in, what are you gonna do with it? It was an if only. Well, when my ship comes in, then I will fund this mission trip, pay off that debt for the church, do that, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. But until that happens, I'm just stuck where I am. If I only had more money, Or if I only had more time, I've done deep research into this. Guess how much time you have? The exact exact same amount that everybody else has. 24 hours a day. And then there's that little minutes that are off at the end of the year they have to fix with leap year. But nonetheless, we all get the same amount of time. If I only had more time. If only my kid wasn't a rebel and didn't walk away. It's our kid's faults now that we act this way or don't. If only my heart wasn't broken like you're the first and only one. If only I was married. If only I wasn't married. You get that both sides? I mean, and let me just go ahead and can we just call it what it is? Evangelical American church elevates marriage to a point of idolatry. You knew this, right? That's why churches don't know what to do with single adults by and large. Except, you know, hey, go gather in a back room somewhere. Maybe you'll get married one day. <laughs> I'm telling you, we'll get to that sermon series soon. But the American Christian culture has elevated, I talked to the college students at the conference two weeks ago about this. I said, let me ask you this, college students. I said, you may be going to, you're, you're living in a university city, so that's a little different than maybe a lot of our churches. But, you know, you have the youth group, and everybody in the church knows where to put you when you're a teenager in the youth group, right? And then you get out of the youth group, and then if you go to college, you get to go to the college group because you're in a city with a university. But after you get out of college, if you don't get married, what's happening now? 
Well, your mom and dad are asking if you're dating anybody, and your grandma's wondering if you're ever going to get married, and they're all wanting, you know, once you finally do, if you do. Because, by the way, I don't know if you knew this. I don't know if you knew this. It, it, it actually, you can be a godly man or woman and never be married. You know that, right? Marriage doesn't fix issues. It just brings another person's issues and merges it with yours. Now we're in a marriage conference. Here we go. But I'm telling you, the church has wrongly elevated marriage, and marriage is godly and right, but not every human being is called to be a married missionary. Otherwise, we have no Lottie Moon offering. And then we've got to figure out what to do with Jesus, who despite Dan Brown, never got married. That's a Da Vinci Code for those that don't remember that 30-year-old movie by now. All right. So let's get back on this, if only. Because you've got a lot of people that don't even feel like they have an identity unless they're in a relationship with somebody. If only I was married, or if only I was single. If only my boss wasn't who he is or she is. If only my pastor preached better sermons. Stop. Because you ain't amen nothing yet, and it better not be there. If only we had better music at the church. Same stop. If only my life group was worth inviting people to, but nobody in my class is prepared, and I don't want to invite people to a class where everybody shows up late. If only the teacher took it seriously. If only, if only, if only someone else would, then I would be able to live all in for God, if only. And while the people of God often live in the pit of the if onlys, we miss that blame plus excuses means that we are telling God he has screwed up and failed. And you're like, well, that's not what I'm saying to God. It is absolutely what we're saying to God. Blame plus excuses, somebody else's fault, and if only that would happen, then I would do this for the Lord. And yet Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Guess what that means? That means despite your circumstances, if you have God, you have it all. You don't get more Holy Spirit the longer you're a Christian. You cannot be filled by him by choosing to live in rebellion to him, but you don't get saved and then later on, 10 years later, get a little more Holy Spirit and then get a little more Holy Spirit and now you're faithfully walking with him. Your ability to walk with the Lord begins at the new birth moment, not some second blessing later on. Thank you. I'm just telling you, we have set up a systematic religion, religious world that may need an Isaiah to show up some point and to tell us the truth. Because we know this is how it is. God has given us all we need. And when we think we need Jesus plus something else, anytime you add something to Jesus, you've removed Jesus. Well, Jesus plus a better home life, a better job, a better preacher, a better uh, uh, bank account, a bigger one. See, now you're going into prosperity gospel, and you can see where that leads you. Leads, leads you. But sometimes we want God plus all the other stuff we define as needed to finally do what we determine he wants us to do. But in reality, it really just becomes simply a list of things of, or people viewed as things that we want to change for our glory and for our ease. See, Peter said we get all we get. He didn't say it's going to be easy. He said we get all we need. He didn't say it's going to be smooth. He said, all of God is what you've got, and that's all you need. And he didn't say, everybody's going to cheer you on and think you made a great decision. We celebrated two baptisms today. We celebrated. 
but the world won't. Just know that. The angels celebrate new life, but the spirit of this world does not. Remember that. And throughout the remainder of this chapter, I know, I know our weather is cra- I'm sorry, folks. I am sweating like crazy. And I see uh, you're out there, and, and I'm going to tell you, you out there who are pulling those offering envelopes and using them as fans, you're making me hotter because I know it's hot out there. Appreciate you. And I'm going to tell you this. If you've used an offering envelope as a fan, you have to put money in it and turn it in at the end of the thing. <laughs> if you give digitally, it doesn't, you, you, I know, use your phone. I don't know. Use your iPad. I'm just kidding. Okay. So let me quickly run through this. Isaiah then says about the vineyard and this, that, and the other, and then he says, I'm going to bring out some grapes and tell you about six stinky bunches of grapes. That's where I should have gone to Publix and bought some bad grapes. Well, they probably don't have bad grapes. I'd have probably had to go out in the woods and find some bad grapes. So imagine I'm bringing up a stinky bunch of grapes. And here's what he does in this passage. God gives Isaiah the word to say, just in case the audience misses this, that the reason the grapes are stinky is because of these reasons. The first bunch of grapes he brings out is the bunch of grapes that represents greed. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but greed is not a spiritual gift. And in verse 8, it says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And if you want to paraphrase of that, what that means, woe to those who accumulate so much stuff because everybody else has it, that when it finally comes down to it and they are no longer here, their kids have to figure out what public storage unit to go find that stuff in. The greed of wanting what others have. That's a stinky bunch of grapes. Here's number two. The bunch of excess. It parallels this one. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. You can talk about the version of drink and alcohol. That's their fuel. Why do they need that? Because they're only home for like two hours a day because they're working like a dog to make more. How much is enough? One dollar more. How much do I need? I just need a little bit more. It's only for a season. It's not forever. And that season lasts forever. While the kids grow up and the, and the, the world turns. And you wonder, what happened? The stinky bunch of grapes is that desire for more. And that excess that you can't stop. The third bunch is that stinky bunch of believing lies. Believing lies. There are more lies shared than truth nowadays. You know that. And by the way, when I mean nowadays, I mean like from like your negative one million. So, all right? Or young earth, negative 5,000. So, there you go. From Adam, lies have been told. Well, it was uh, the woman made me do it. Well, uh, the, the serpent made me do it. Oh, well, then the blame game started back then, didn't it? And then we lie about it. Cain, who, who killed your brother? Well, I don't, am I my brother's keeper? And story after story after story. Woe to those, verse 18, who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Stinky bunch of grapes, number four, redefining truth. This is, this, if you, you like highlighting verses, highlight this one, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I think you need that. You understand this one, right? 
Woe to those in the world today and years past who have decided that which is an absolute truth that the scripture has said truthfully is true and right for all people, all circumstances, all times, and yet now we flipped it and what used to be true is now considered a lie. What used to be acceptable is now considered acceptable. What used to be righteous is now considered evil. What used to be considered moral is now considered immoral. And I'm not talking 1950s American church to now. I'm talking thousands of years this has continued to crop up. And what happens is the church gets off track and the Lord does what the Lord does and brings us back on and truth matters. And then we get off track. And that's what's happening to the people of God right here. They have the same 10 commandments we have. They they have the, the same Old Testament, the law that we look at. But that's for their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation. It's outdated and not needed regardless how much they go through temple worship and ritualistic stuff. They're doing it out of ritual and they're believing lies and they've shifted truth. And that is the beginning of that lie that is perpetuated for generations. You ever heard someone say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. That's this. And if you say it, stop. Because there's no such thing as truth that is competing with each other. There is no truth for me and a truth for you. There is truth and there is untruth. That's it. And you go, I don't know if I believe that. Well, here's the truth. You're wrong. Because there's only truth and untruth. And then stinky bunch of grapes number five. Oh, my voice is cracking. Man, puberty's terrible. All right, here we go. Arrogance. Arrogance. Arrogance, by the way, is also not a spiritual gift. Cockiness is not a spiritual gift. God does not elevate cocky people and say, look at that, be like that. And we see it in athletes and and, uh, celebrities and all that. We also see it in spiritually abusive pastors and other religious leaders. Arrogance. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, verse 21, and shrewd in their own sight. In other words, woe to those who are the president of their own fan club, who write their own press clippings and produce them and then reread them every night. Woe to those who, when they walk in the room, are self-declared the smartest person in the room. Woe to the person who is an arrogant jerk because there is no humility in him or her, and you can't have both. And then the last bunch of stinky grapes is an interesting mixture. Drunken injustice. And I'm like, why didn't you just bring out a seventh bunch? But he didn't for a reason. He mixed these. Drunkenness and social injustice seem unrelated, but the prophet connects them here and throughout scripture as this reality. It's the drunkenness of the elite's party. The elite people have a party drug and it's to get plastered because they have the power. And the elite run the systems. That's what was happening in Israel. They run the systems that lead to the harm of others who live in lower socioeconomic groups. So what it says is, verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Those who don't have the money or the power, tough. And those who do can get away with just about anything. 
So who is to blame for the stinky grapes? Is it the vine dresser? God? Is it the God who does not provide? Is it God who has failed? No. It is the revelation of all that is truly to blame that reveals something we must come to grips with, something we have to understand, something that changes everything. Grace. Grace of God. Grace is unmerited favor. God has shown you favor. He showed his people favor. Grace is that undeserved love. You don't deserve the love of God. I don't deserve the love of God. Unearned blessings. Everybody that's watching online and in the room right now has at least at some point in the last minute and a half taken a breath. That oxygen that entered into your nostrils and went down to your lungs and is keeping you alive is not something you deserve and nor is it owed to you. Many of you right here, in fact, I would go ahead and say all of you probably have a heart inside of your chest that is beating right now. You haven't thought about it all morning, perhaps, unless it's going a little crazy. But you're not making it beat. It does that. It's an involuntary muscle. It does that as the muscle itself just continues to work. Why? Not because it's owed to you, but because of the grace of God that is giving you life. You say, well, there are other animals that have hearts and take breaths. Yeah, all by God's design. But yours and mine is a gift from God every day. You wake up this morning, you go, I hope it's going to be a good day. Well, I hope it is too. But you woke up, and that's a gift that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, and isn't promised, but you have it today by the grace of God. Undeserved love, undeserved life, unearned blessings. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great Welsh pastor, speaks of sin and how it sneaks up on us and how it lies to us and how it removes that. It, it makes it feel like we are owed so much. Let me just read you Martin Lloyd-Jones's quote here. He says, sin is very clever. It always brings forward its reasons, its arguments. Sin knows us so well, it knows that we like to think of ourselves as highly intelligent people. So it does not just tell us, do this. It gives us reason for doing it. And we have those reasons, and they appear to be wonderful. But the whole point is that in reality, these are specious, they are empty, they are foolish reasons. The reasoning is always false reasoning. The arguments are always wrong. Everybody in the room here today sins and everybody has justified it why'd you do that well you know it's because he did that or she did that or it was a circumstance and i didn't know what to do and well it's okay it's not it, you know. we are justifiers we are blamers and that's who we are but we get to behold the grace of god this great love this great gift this great life this great hope that is not earned but is offered and how do you respond when you behold the grace of God? You leave the blaming behind. You quit making excuses for why things are the way they are and why you cannot live for God right now, but you will one day when your proverbial boat comes in. Stop it. And recognize what's happening. Sin is creeping into your heart and your life, Christians, and you are justifying it. So stop. And confess that sin to the Lord and repent and turn away and receive the forgiveness and grace God has perpetually offered you as his child. 
In the New Testament, there are warnings about receiving God's grace in vain. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, working together with him, then we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. It happened then, it happens now. But how do we keep from receiving God's grace in vain? Well, there's one way, and that has to do with that vineyard we keep talking about. It seems like God keeps going back to grapes. But in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking. The second person of the Trinity, the one true God, Father, Son, Spirit, the Son speaks. And he says in John 15, I am the true vine. What does that mean? That means the true vine doesn't produce stinky grapes. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. The majority of people watching and listening here today are likely Christians. I don't presume all of you are, but the majority of you are. So this moves from being an evangelistic service to a reminder for the already saved that God has saved you, and he has rescued you, and he has redeemed you, and you didn't deserve it. And he did so for a lot of reasons but definitely not so that we could produce stinky grapes. And it's so easy, as I look at that list, to be greedy, to want more, to believe lies, to redefine truth to fit me, to be cocky and arrogant, and to not worry about those who don't have a voice and let injustice rule. For Christians, we need to repent and make sure we know we are connected to the true vine. For the non-believers in the room, here's the call and the invitation. Why would God have you be here today if for no other reason than this? To remind you how much he loves you. How much he wants you to have life, full and abundant, right here on earth, even if it's difficult and challenging, and full and eternal in heaven forever. See, the gospel's more than a ticket to heaven. It is good news for now. And if you don't know Jesus, I pray that you will come to know him now, that you will come and speak to me or one of our other pastors or leaders about what it means to know Christ personally and enter into that relationship today. As scripture says, today is the day of salvation. For the Christians in the room and those online, and you need to say, Lord, forgive me for going through the motions and forgetting what grace really is. See, we know grace is what we say before a meal. Let's say grace. Let's say grace. Well, what does that come from? That's a Latin term that has been translated into English, and it actually means thankfulness. So when we talk about grace, it's all that unmerited stuff that God gives us, and it is us returning a great thank you because we know we don't deserve it. We're going to close with a song, and I pray you worship well through this. And at the close of the service, if you need to talk to me or one of our other pastors, please do. Don't leave a decision left undone. For those that are you online, or if you're online today, send us an email or a message through Facebook or YouTube. Don't forget to connect with us. Don't leave it left undone just because we're two-dimensional on your phone or your television or your computer. Because we're a real church with real people in a real building and a real gathering. And we're a real family and would love for you to join that. Let's pray together. Father, as we behold you now, as we think of who you are and the goodness and the the life that you have given, we are overwhelmed with all, how, how applicable a thousands-of-year-old word written in the book in the Old Testament, the scriptures you have given us in the book of Isaiah, feel like they were written today. Because your word is living and true, and it is life-changing. Jesus Christ, thank you, Father, for the Son. Thank you for the crucifixion. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the life that is offered to us. 
Thank you, Father, that we have the privilege and honor to behold you through him by the power of the Holy Spirit today. Just remind us of our place in relation to you as honored children who have been invited into your family and have been changed. Let us live that way. And let us be contagious Christians so that others would want to behold you as well. We behold your grace in Jesus' name.